Almost three years ago, this gentleman you see on the screen, Dr. Al Mohler, whom I consider one of the sharpest commentators on the social life in America, almost three years ago in April of 2014, here's what he wrote. Tell me if this isn't prophetic. Here's what he wrote. The question of homosexuality now presents evangelicals in the United States with a decision that cannot be avoided. Within a very short time, we will know where everyone stands on this question. There will be no place to hide. There will be no way to remain silent. To be silent will be to answer the question. The question is whether evangelicals will remain true to the teachings of Scripture and the unbroken teaching of the Christian church for over 2,000 years on the morality of same-sex acts and the institution of marriage. The world is pressing this question upon us, but so are a number of voices from within the larger evangelical circle. Voices that are calling for a radical revision of the church's understanding of the Bible, of sexuality, and the meaning of marriage. We are living in the midst of a massive revolution in morality, and sexual morality is at the center of this revolution. How we respond will show the world what we understand about everything the Bible reveals and everything that the church teaches, even the gospel itself. So this morning we come upon one of the most controversial and one of the most examined passages in all of the New Testament, Paul's teaching on homosexuality. And as I stand here this morning, I don't have to tell you how our interpretation of this passage is both culturally relevant and spiritually significant. Lives for all eternity hang in the balance on this question. As you know, we've entered into a rather bizarre period in the history of Western civilization where so many things that were, that were so, such givens, things were long held in civilization, are now completely blurred and fuzzy and seem to be up for grabs. What is marriage? How do you define what a mother is, what a father is? Are both of them necessary anymore? Where's the current feminist movement taking us? Is there any distinction left between male and female? How is gender defined? Is it biological or are we now defined simply by how we feel? Do you have to be male or female? Can you simply be non-binary now? It is a wild, wild, wild world out there, is it not? I want you to know that I had every intention this week of diving into just two verses in Romans 1 and teaching on them and moving on. That hope was not realized. Uh, as I got into it this week, as I did my research, and as I prayed, I realized that this message is just too much for one 45-minute period. In fact, it's going to take us at least two messages to get through just these two verses, because this is too important for us to just rush through because of the times that we live in. So this message, which I'm calling the unnatural exchange, is going to take place in two parts, including this morning and next Sunday. This morning, just so that you know, I hope you got lots of rest or you drank lots of coffee because the message this morning is going to be sort of the academic and textual part of this discussion. We need to lay the foundation theologically and doctrinally before we get to the very practical implications of what Paul is saying here, and we'll cover that next week. Now, I have to tell you that, and I told some of you guys this week, it scares me to death to break this message up into two. And the reason for that is it's going to feel very bifurcated, like we're going to do the academic stuff and the practical stuff, and my fear is that you'll be here for today but not next Sunday, <laughs> and that you'll walk away unbalanced, that you'll walk away with only half of the truth. So if you do miss next Sunday, please, I beg of you, go online and listen to it on the podcast, on the website, so that you get the full picture. I don't want anybody to walk away half-informed. And in fact, this week, an email I'll probably send out to the entire church to say, if you miss this Sunday, but you're coming next Sunday, make sure you first listen to this so you get the foundational teaching. Just so that you know, my prayer for both this Sunday and next is that we as a church and that me as the preacher will find a healthy biblical balance on this very controversial subject, a balance between conviction and compassion. Both are necessary. That we would be unflinching in our conviction about what the biblical test, text actually teaches, that we would not waver from that, not back away from it because it's hard, 
but at the same time to be equipped and ready to extend grace and compassion towards those who battle, even within the church, over same-sex attraction. Be that somebody in our congregation or somebody who is in one of our families, maybe a friend, a neighbor, a coworker. We've got to have that balance between saying, this is true, now, how do we communicate that graciously to a lost and broken world? Before we dive in, I think it's important that we recognize just a few things. First of all, we should acknowledge here this morning the inescapable reality that sexual temptation is all around us. Let's not be naive about this. There are no doubt people in our church body who struggle in the area of sexual temptation, whether that be same-sex attraction or gender identity or pornography or lust or thoughts of adultery. God has designed us as sexual beings, and so we all struggle in this area. Can we affirm that? Good. Second, as Christians, we should remind ourselves that the issue of homosexuality is not a political one. It's a people issue. And again, that's why compassion is required, and it needs to be approached in the right way. Third, the goal of this study is not to prove that we're right, so that we can thump our chest and say, look, we've got this all figured out, and we can point fingers at other people. It's so that we can humbly trust in God's word and find ways to communicate that truth in ways that bind up the hurting and encourage those who are struggling. We've got to get balanced on this. So humility, compassion, and rejection of pride are absolute musts for today and next Sunday. Agreed? Good. Grab your Bibles. Turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. By the way, uh, I mentioned this two weeks ago as a warning. I'll say it again this morning. We are about to talk about some adult themes in this message. Already sort of have. It's going to get more adult. So if you brought a child in here and this is something that you don't think should the first hearing of this should be in church, but it should be home with mom and dad, then Jesse is still around somewhere. She's right there. You can still check your, your young one into acorns and they can go and, and, and be taught a lesson with the acorn ministry. That's fine. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Max, you can be all right. Okay. 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 No, but seriously, we're going to talk about some adult things and some pretty blunt language here this morning, so be ready. Romans 1, let's back up to verse 22 so we get the full flow of what Paul's saying here. Verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way, also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Stop there. Trevor, go ahead and click it one more time. We've spent a few Sundays now delving into Paul's book of sin. The first of real five mini books within the book of Romans. And we've learned that God is currently, right now, pouring out his wrath upon men and women all over the world who suppress the truth about God in their unrighteous lives. God has made himself evident to all mankind through creation, yet they still, although they know God in their heart, they still refuse to honor him and refuse to give him thanks. What we saw last time was this. When men and women suppress the truth about God, they naturally devolve into idolatry. Let me say that again, because this is key. When men and women suppress the truth about God, Refusing to acknowledge that he exists, refusing to honor him or thank him, they will naturally devolve into idolatry. And a foolish exchange then takes place. The truth about God is exchanged for a lie, and men find themselves worshiping created things, material things, rather than the creator. They will exchange the glory, this is amazing, of an eternal, immortal, all-wise God for things that are shallow and temporary. They have access to things that are precious, and they trade them for nothing. 
It's hard to imagine, isn't it? That they would trade a diamond for a simple rock. That they would have a bar of gold in their hand and they would say, I'd like to trade this away for a worthless, rusty nail. But that's what men and women do. And all the while, as the world applauds them for it, they will still profess to be wise. But Paul points out the obvious. They're not wise at all. They're fools. Only a fool trades away things that are eternal for things that are temporary and waste away. Trevor, go ahead. Now, beginning in verse 24, we see Paul describe the next step in their downward spiral after idolatry. The descent into idolatry is soon followed by various forms of sexual immorality. Verse 24, Therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their heart to what? To impurity, to uncleanness, so that their bodies would be dishonored. And we see this truth throughout human history. You know I'm a history geek. You study all these historical civilizations, whether it's ancient Sodom or it's Baal worship or the worship of Ishtar or the, or the Roman goddess Artemis that we see in the New Testament. It doesn't matter which period of time you look at, a rejection of the one true God leads to pagan idolatry, and with idolatry comes sexual perversion. Write it down. It'll happen every time. There's an old saying from a Jewish apocryphal work. It goes like this. The idea of making idols was the beginning of fornication. And the invention of those idols became the corruption of life. That's true. See, when man invents a god for himself or gods for himself, he then feels like he has the power to rewrite the rule book for human conduct. Or at least he's deceived into thinking that he can do that. And that there won't be any consequences to it. He believes he can do as he pleases. And then he encourages others to do the same, right? Because misery loves company. And so he says, you can live any way you want, right? Go on social media. You'll see this all over the place, right? Live any way you want. Nobody has the right to place any moral constraints upon you. You are the authority in your life. So go ahead and just indulge. And that, folks, is the very tragic story of Romans chapter 1. Man suppresses the truth about God. He puts himself in the chair of authority. And he proceeds to then make himself unclean by dishonoring his body with others. And you see what it says there in verse 24. God gave them over to this. Now that's, we talked about this two weeks ago. That's hard language. God gave them over to it. You'll see it repeated again in verse 26, right? God gave them over to degrading or dishonorable passions. By the way, that formula that Paul's using, this giving over, this handing over, is actually rooted in the Old Testament scriptures. How many times do we read that God gives over the enemies of Israel so that they'll be defeated in battle? Or, on the flip side, how he promises to deliver Israel into the hands of their enemies if they break covenant with him. It's this giving over, this handing over. That's the same idea that Paul's talking about in Romans 1. God is withdrawing his protective hand, and he's allowing the, the, the consequences of sin to take their inevitable, destructive course in the lives of people who suppress the truth. As one scholar put it, God ceases to hold the boat as it's dragged by the current downstream. But as another theologian says, it's actually more active than that. God doesn't just simply let the boat go. He gives it a push downstream. Now that's the scary part, is it not? God actively hands over the rebellious sinner to a terrible cycle of ever-increasing sin. That's what happens when we disavow a knowledge of God. That's what happens when we fail in our lives to honor him or give thanks to him. He will actively hand people over to their own sin. Look again at verse 26. God gave them over to what? Degrading passions. Now here comes the, the beginning of his diagnosis of homosexuality in particular. And you can't help but notice the severity of the language here, right? Degrading passions. The ESV says dishonorable Passions. The NIV translate, translates it shameful lusts. The Greek word here, atomia, refers to something that is not worthy of respect. It is disgraceful. The language couldn't be more clear on this. And after that rather severe introduction about degrading passions, what follows then is first a description of lesbianism and then of male homosexuality. And both of those things, whether male or female, overturn the natural order when it comes to sexual relations. 
Verse 26 goes on. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. Now, I'd love to tell you that if we dug into the Greek, there's all kinds of interesting nuances in there. It's not. It's very clear. It's very simple, right? It says what it says. The Greek word here for natural, phusikos, refers to things that belong to the natural order of creation. The natural order of creation. Sometimes you see this word used in classical Greek to speak of what we call instinct. It's the natural instinct of a woman to desire a heterosexual relationship, not homosexual. But instead, this exchange takes place. And this is one of the great themes of Romans 1, these foolish and now unnatural exchanges from that which is natural to that which is contrary to nature. And this is an indication of how this woman has departed from her right worship and knowledge of God. It's interesting that Paul mentions women first, isn't it? Uh, In fact, this is a curious thing that's been studied for many centuries, and the text doesn't really tell us why women come first, but I'll I'll give you one theory that's very common, and this comes from the great Princeton theologian Charles Hodge, Here's what he says. Paul first refers to the degradation of females among the heathen because they are always the last to be affected in the decay of morals. And their corruption is therefore proof that all virtue has been lost. So there you go, ladies. A compliment from Charles Hodge. Men, he says, are the first ones to to dive into vice and sin. And I think there's some truth to that, especially when it comes to sexual sin. And the fact that Paul mentions women first, I think, is him simply highlighting how terribly unnatural this is, that women fall first. Now look at verse 27. In the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire towards one another, men with men, committing indecent acts. Again, nothing hidden in the text here. It says what it says, the language is clear, and it's equally severe. Indecent acts, the word means unseemly. It means shameful. And again, another exchange, the man willfully departs from his instinctual attraction to the opposite sex, and because God is giving him over to his rebellion and idolatry, he now becomes inflamed. And again, the language is strong. He burns with passion, with this unnatural desire towards other men. And finish the verse here in 27, it, it, it ends on another severe note. And receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. This is a sowing and reaping effect in this sinful behavior. A payback, so to speak, for engaging in unnatural acts. The verb here for receiving is written in the present tense. What that means is they are continually receiving what is owed them for violating the natural order. Whether that's physical or that's emotional or that's spiritual, they're continually receiving God's wrath because of it. They're in error, Paul says. You can't misinterpret plane in the Greek. It means error. It means to wander from the truth. To live a homosexual lifestyle is to live in error according to God's word. Hard stuff, right? But very clear. And so we need to We need to receive it, and we need to chew on it, and we need to process it. We need to pray over it. We need to meditate on it and say, Lord, now what? Come back next Sunday. We'll talk about that. Now, don't miss Paul's logic. If you can step back for a second and see the big picture. Human beings who reject the existence of God, who fail to honor him and give him thanks, really, they divorce themselves from truth and reality. We, we talked about this two weeks ago when we had our discussion about, about worldview. Because people who reject God start at the wrong place, they always end up at the wrong place, and they misinterpret everything in life in between. If you don't start in the right place, you're going to be messed up. In the case of sexuality, human beings who reject God end up divorcing themselves from the truth about their own humanity, about their own identity, And that leads to confusion and chaos in society. If you ever go ahead and click this, just a a really simple, a simple diagram. Confusion about God leads to confusion about who we are, about man. Confusion about man leads to confusion about sexuality. And when we're confused about sexuality, what results? Chaos in society. This is what we're seeing today. Whenever men and women turn
turn away from God, destructive forces are unleashed and terrible things begin to happen in society. The wrath of God is poured out. We're seeing it today, are we not? Look, I'm, I'm fi- almost 54 years old. I've seen a lot of things. I've never seen anything like I've seen it today, in this time, in this era. Long-held standards of morality begin to disappear. Things you once thought were unthinkable become commonplace. Things that are evil are no longer called evil. In fact, they're called what? Good. Acceptable. Family structures that are so necessary to society begin to crumble. The distinctions between male and female get blurred. They become obliterated. The difference between right and wrong becomes fuzzy and subjective. And in that type of atmosphere, something as foolish as homosexuality becomes first tolerated, then accepted, then praised, and finally, and this is what's happening today, enshrined as the ultimate brand of freedom. Welcome to Western Civilization, 2017. This is where we live today. Friends, this is no era of sexual revolution or sexual enlightenment that we live in. Far from it. This is a day of darkness and wrath. And we need to understand that. Now, here's one of the questions that often gets asked when, whenever I talk to somebody or engage on social media in some way over this issue of homosexuality, and I bring up Romans 1. They say, well, I don't understand why, among all the list of sins out there, why would Paul address homosexuality if he's trying to make his point here? Couldn't he have used something else? Why homosexuality? And I think the answer is, is because it's so obviously unnatural. Isn't it obvious? The world is always saying to you, hey, you Christians, you ought to pay more attention to biology. Okay. Look at the biology in this situation. Look at a man. Look at a woman. Is it not obvious that they fit together? Is it not obvious that same-sex partners don't fit together? I mean, I don't think we have to go back to sixth grade, right? That's pretty obvious. Doesn't procreation of the species tell you that heterosexuality is the telos or the proper end that God has in mind for mankind? I mean, you really have to suspend rationality to think otherwise. And so why is homosexuality lifted up as the archetype for this? Because I believe Paul is saying this really is the ultimate example of foolishness. Foolishness. So with that is my introduction. What we're going to do with the time we have left is talk about the seven most common attacks that have come a- against us, and when I say us, against our interpretation as I just laid it out of this passage in Romans 1. By the way, do you know that those attacks are coming? They're everywhere, okay? Now, I'm not talking about the foolishness of the world that just you know, we don't hold the world to a standard that they can't possibly meet without the Spirit of God. We don't hold them to a biblical standard. But there are people that profess Christ who are in churches and universities and seminaries who are doing their best to attack the interpretation that I just laid out. Those people we hold to account, right? So let's talk about some of these attacks. In fact, Trevor, go ahead. They're, you're so good. People already knew that you'd done that. You're awesome. Let me start with this statement. The Bible has nothing good to say about homosexuality. That sounds a bit harsh, I know, but it needs to be said. Here's what I mean by that. There's no positive case anywhere in Scripture to support God's approval or even tolerance for a homosexual lifestyle. Now, I'm making a distinction there between the temptation and the lifestyle. Understand that. And we'll get to to that uh, next week more. But that's an important distinction. Temptation is not the sin. It's giving in to the sin and living the lifestyle that we're talking about here today. The Bible has nothing good to say about that. It's just there's no support for it, no tolerance for it, not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. The repeated condemnations are unavoidable. And just the language we looked at in those six verses should convince you of that. Let me say them again. Impurity, dishonorable, degrading, unnatural, indecent and error there's no way to spin that that's what it says but we need to be aware that there are many voices in our culture today and again i'm 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 warning you that people in churches in seminaries 
in universities who are doing their best, striving with all their, mark, all their might to change hearts and minds on this issue. They're out there. And they're doing it in a variety of ways, Trev. They're appealing to emotion. They're appealing to unity. They love to appeal to our sense of historical injustice. And the most common of all, in terms of arguments, is trying to convince us that our traditional interpretations of Scripture are unjustified because of this vast time gap and this difference in culture between the the world of the Bible and today. All kinds of attempts are being made by people who are pretty good at it, by the way, to try to chip away at the right interpretation of this passage and others in the Bible. Now, let me say this clearly. Their arguments don't rest on any real exegetical conclusions. Did you hear what I just said? Their arguments are based on emotion and unity and injustice and culture. They're not based in any real exegetical conclusions from the actual text. What they're trying to do is cast doubt on traditional interpretations with one goal in mind, to win affirmation and acceptance into the body of Christ. Now, the most prominent and you could say successful voice out there is a guy named Matthew Vines. And there's a picture of his website right there. Okay? He has a nationwide organization that is dedicated to convincing you that there is such a thing as a gay Christian and that they deserve a place within the body of Christ. Let me read to you some of the, what his website says about himself. Matthew Vines is the founder and executive director of the Reformation Project. Yeah, co-opting terms that are traditionally used in conservative churches. And the author of God and the Gay Christian, the Biblical Case in Support of Same-Sex Relationships. Matthew attended Harvard University from 2008 to 2010. He then took a leave of absence in order to research the Bible and homosexuality and work towards LGBT inclusion in the church. In March 2012, Matthew delivered a speech at a church in his hometown about the Bible and homosexuality, calling for acceptance of gay Christians and their marriage relationships. Since then, the video of his speech has been seen more than a million times on YouTube, leading to a feature story in the New York Times. So you think this isn't, this isn't getting out there? It is. In 2013, Matthew launched the Reformation Project, a nonprofit organization dedicated to training LGBT Christians and their allies to reform church teaching on sexual orientation and gender identity. He is now expanding his efforts with conferences and regular speaking engagements across the country. God and the Gay Christian has generated significant media attention with U.S. News and World Report calling it profoundly important. Okay, so if you haven't heard of this movement that's out there, be aware of it. Here's what he affirms in his book. Vine says this, Christians who affirm the full authority of Scripture can also affirm committed monogamous same-sex relationships. He announces that once his argument is accepted, the fiercest objections to LGBT equality, those based on religious beliefs, can begin to fall away, and together we can reclaim the light. See, here's the thing. Matthew Vines is a smart guy, and he's, and he's very savvy. He's a Harvard guy. He's smart. He's savvy. He understands. He grew up in the church, folks. He understands church culture. He knows how to speak to it. He knows all the buzz phrases. And look at him. He's a good-looking, clean-cut young man, is he not? He's got this figured out. He's a good marketer. And you should know who his primary target is. His primary target are simple, everyday churchgoers who aren't well-versed in Scripture. His target is people who struggle to put together a logical argument, who who struggle to follow a logical argument. His target are those who are easily swayed by, by popular opinion, by cultural pressure, and by emotional appeals. He's got this figured out. And he's making inroads. Guess who he's targeting, by the way? The biggest megachurches he can find. Smart. Smart strategy, right? The enemy is, is very crafty. He's going after the sort of lukewarm megachurches because you get your foot in that door and you can have a real impact on the world. Now, Vines is not a biblical scholar. He admits that. He has no real training in theology 
And he has done a couple of debates with actual biblical scholars, and he's gotten torched. So he doesn't do debates anymore. Okay? I mean, that's just the reality. If you, want, you can go on YouTube and watch him get torched by a couple people. So now he goes to friendly atmospheres, friendly environments where he can share his message. But he has been able to parrot some of the arguments out there that are made by liberal scholars who have written books on this subject. Bottom line is he's, he knows just enough to be dangerous. And he's leading people astray. So let's walk through these seven arguments because many of them are, are, are pushed by guys like Matthew Vines. We need to be aware of it. By the way, what's my purpose in walking through these things? It's first to encourage you and to strengthen you in your biblical resolve. I want you to feel confident that the traditional interpretation of Romans 1 and other passages that have been around for 2,000 years didn't change in 1990. Nothing changed. By the way, none of, them, none of these guys are claiming that anything about the text changed other than they see it differently than 2,000 years of Christian study. That itself ought to set off some alarm bells, right? Second is to protect you from being victimized by arguments that might sound good or scholarly but are actually faulty and shallow. So let me break some of these down for you. Trev, go ahead and hit the first one. Number one is this one. Jesus prayed for unity, so let's just agree to disagree and love each other instead of arguing. I mean, you guys have heard this one. Here's the problem. It is almost impossible to exaggerate how seriously the sin of sexual immorality is treated in the Bible. It is serious. There are eight lists in the New Testament known as vice lists, where the biblical author just simply lifts off, lists off a number of things which are displeasing to God and separate people from eternal life. Sexual immorality is in all eight of them. In seven of the eight, you'll find multiple references to sexual sin, and in some of those lists, it's the number one thing at the top of the list. It is a deadly serious thing. Sexual immorality is precisely the type of sin that characterizes people who will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Know that. So, in light of that, it seems unwise to play loose with it. Wouldn't you agree? It seems unwise to claim that this is a moral gray area that we can just say, eh, agree to disagree. Now, I realize that when people say agree to disagree, it's a, that's a profound argument, and it's often a very manipulative argument, and it's easy to give in to it because we all like to be liked. The question is unity at what cost? That's always the question. When you hear somebody say agree to disagree, let's fight for unity at what cost? That's a key question. When we fail to condemn what God condemns, we're promoting a brand of tolerance that leads people away from God. That is not loving. Did you hear me of that? It is not loving to say it's okay, even though God says it's not okay, and to lead people further from him, not loving at all. In fact, that's exactly how the serpent loved Eve, right? By questioning, did God really say that? You surely won't die if you eat it. That's the type of love that we're talking about here. May we never find ourselves locking arms with the enemy and leading people away from God in the name of something called unity. Amen? Number two. The Bible hardly ever mentions homosexuality, and Jesus never spoke of it. Very common objection. Now, if hardly ever means multiple passages in Genesis, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, 1 Kings, Romans, 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy, and Jude, then fine, hardly. Right? But that's an awful lot to ignore. But in addition to that, what they fail to mention are the hundreds of passages, hundreds of them throughout the Bible to speak in a positive sense about what marriage is, about what sex should look like. And in every case, it's a man and a woman, period. So it's intellectually dishonest for these guys to ignore the fact that the Bible starts with that God-approved design in marriage and sex, a man and a woman, and continues that same pattern all the way through to Revelation, 4,000 years of church history. Right? That seems intellectually dishonest. Now, is it true that Jesus never spoke about homosexuality? It's true. But so what? What exactly does that prove? See, again, this is a compelling argument. They, sometimes they'll throw this at you and you'll go, uh, Jesus never talked about it. Uh. The answer is so. 
What does that prove? Listen, I've talked about a lot of things this morning, but I have not mentioned what I had for breakfast. Does that mean I don't like breakfast? I didn't mention it. So clearly, I disapprove of breakfast. I mean, this is a, this is a fundamental logical fallacy that you learn in, 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 in the earliest levels of philosophy. It's called the argument from silence. You can't claim that Jesus is okay with something simply because he didn't address it. Does that make sense? There's a lot of things that Jesus didn't teach on. Even sexual sins. Jesus never talked about pedophilia. So should we assume that he's okay with pedophilia? God forbid that we would ever make that logical leap. Of course not. Here's the thing. It would be somewhat surprising if Jesus had addressed homosexuality. Here's why. Jesus came to and taught an entirely Jewish audience. Did you know that? In fact, he says it himself. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the fact is, for a first century Jew, the question of homosexuality was not up for grabs. I mean, the Torah was very, very clear about this. Jesus wouldn't have had any need to reinforce this teaching with his Jewish audience. It's hard to misinterpret the word abomination. Right? But Paul's a different case. Why? Because Paul's primary primary audience is what? Gentile. And homosexuality was rampant in Greek and Roman culture. So, of course, you would expect Paul to mention it, and he does, multiple places. This is a foolish objection. And by the way, just a few side notes, it also denies the authority and inspiration of Scripture. So if a professing Christian is throwing this at you, you have to say, well, first of all, how many times does the Bible need to condemn something for it to be official? Once. So you don't think there's enough mentions of it? How many times is it required? Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, one time. Second, we have here what we call the red letter heresy, that only Jesus' words matter. But wasn't Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit? Why, why are we only focusing on Jesus? That's the red letter heresy. And third, Jesus did teach on marriage. He did affirm the Genesis account of one man and one woman united in one flesh. It's a ridiculous argument. Let's go to number three. Homosexuality is natural for me because God made me this way. So they're going to argue against the natural, unnatural language in Romans 1 because God made me this way. You've probably heard this before, right? God made me this way. God doesn't make mistakes. And he wouldn't call me to deny my natural desires. Yeah, that argument's built on a false premise, isn't it? It assumes that whatever urges or desires we feel came from God and therefore are God's will for our life. When in fact the urges and desires we feel as natural human beings are a result of the inherent corruption that we carry in our flesh that we got from Adam. Fact is, unredeemed humanity is simply uncomfortable with God calling us sinners. Unredeemed humanity is uncomfortable with the requirement that we take up a cross and deny ourselves. Deny ourselves. Everyone in this room has a. Everyone in this room has a, a cross to bear and unrighteous passions that need to be denied. Did you know that? Every one of us. That is the call on every follower of Christ. Take up your cross and deny yourself. Many of us struggle mightily with sexual sin. And every day is a process, right, of trusting God, of walking in the Spirit, and repenting when we stumble. But we don't say, well, I just feel this way, therefore it's natural, and therefore God gave it to me. That's a foolish argument. Now, I admit, and we'll talk more about this next week, for the man or woman who struggles with same-sex attraction, this is a particularly heavy cross. I don't deny that. We need to be compassionate. We need, we'll talk more about that next week. But the call to deny oneself applies to every person struggling with sexual sin, whether it's homosexuality or it's pornography or it's fornication or it's thoughts of adultery. Heterosexual sin is just as bad as homosexual sin. Right? Can we affirm that? Absolutely. Here's the thing. If we want to be counted among the children of God, we don't have the luxury of saying, well, this is my sexual urge. It's natural for me. Therefore, it must come from God, even though he says this in the Bible. That's a contradiction. In a world where God is creator, natural, 
does not mean our physical urges. Natural means what aligns with his purpose and design for us. Amen? Next one, number four. Christians are inconsistent in their application of Scripture. No, duh. Yeah, that is, that is often true, is it not? But notice this is not a positive argument for homosexual approval, right? This is just a way of saying you Christians are jerks. I mean, basically, right? This is, in fact, Matthew Vine's favorite line of thinking. He argues that while the Levitical Code does forbid homosexuality, he admits that, it also forbids eating shellfish. And it forbids wearing garments that are, 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 have multiple fabrics connected to, to each other, right? And that's true as well. God had a purpose in that for the Levitical Code. Yet he says, well, Christians, you've changed your position on shellfish and on your garments, so why can't you change your position on homosexuality? The heart of this attack is that Christians pick and choose which passages they want to obey. Right? And in some cases, that's a, that's a legitimate argument because some of us do do that. But not with the shellfish garment argument. That's, that's a foolish argument. There are two important things to point out here. First of all, the Levitical code was given to ancient Israel in 1500 BC for the purpose of regulating a life of worship in a theocracy. Newsflash, the church is not the same as ancient Israel. And the commands are not the same for the church as they were in ancient Israel. The church is not a nation. The church is not a theocracy. It's a global organism that stretches across every ethnic and every, every racial, every language border and, and exists under multiple governmental systems. It's very, very differently. More importantly, the ceremonial law of Moses was built around the sacrificial system. It was given for ritual purity and those things were fulfilled in Christ and are not binding on Christians today. The New Testament makes that very clear. In fact, Hebrews says that the old law has been rendered obsolete by the new. Meaning the ceremonial law has been rendered obsolete. It's been fulfilled in Christ. It's not binding on us anymore. Now, there's moral laws in the Old Testament as opposed to ceremonial laws. Those are universal and timeless. They do remain in effect for us in the church, especially and most notably when they're repeated in the New Testament. Do not eat shellfish. Try to find that in your New Testament. You won't. Don't wear these garments with multiple fabrics not repeated in the New Testament. Homosexuality is morally wrong. Repeated in the New Testament multiple times. Does that make sense? So this is an issue of biblical theology. And most of the people you talk to about this, they don't understand the big picture. They just say, well, you're ignoring that verse. Well, there's a reason we're ignoring that verse. It's because it's been done away with by Christ. We need to understand our biblical theology. This one takes explaining because we're not picking and choosing. We're simply following the instructions of God's unfolding revelation for the church. But that one takes explaining. It's important. But that's a very common one. You'll see this one on Facebook all the time. Shellfish. Number five. You're on the wrong side of history. Now, there's a political aspect to this particular argument. The assumption is that someday stubborn Christians like you and me are going to be vastly outnumbered by the population and made to feel foolish. Your opinions, you stubborn Christians who tenaciously hold to your text, you're going to be relegated to the dustbin of history someday because popularity is going to, is going to rise up in the other. It, it's all very dramatic, this type of attack. Now, obviously, popularity has never been the standard for us, right, in terms of what's right and wrong. We know that. But our opponents in this have a very powerful analogy that they use, and we need to understand it when it comes our way. Here's how it goes. For many years, the church stood on the wrong side of slavery. And now you're doing it again. You're denying status to a particular group of people, you're bigots, and someday you're going to regret it. This is the attack. And you'll, again, you'll see this on social media all the time. This one has a strong emotional appeal. I don't, want to be, I don't want to be for slavery, right? So we immediately wave the white flag and give in. Oh, and we get all verklempt about it, right? Don't be. This one's also politically charged, by the way. You know, you don't want to be seen on Facebook even sidling up to slavery, correct? It's tough. 
Here's where the analogy falls short. The question is, first of all, which church supported slavery? Really, did the, isn't it just a huge exaggeration to say all Christians everywhere across the globe supported slavery? That's ridiculous. In fact, not even the majority of churches in America ever believed that slavery was supported by the Bible. Who started the abolitionist movement? Christians. I mean, we need to point these things out, right? It began with evangelicals and Quakers and Mennonites and Methodists and Northern Baptists. That's how abolition started. In fact, if you look at the preaching in the first and second great awakenings in America, a primary tenet of it was what? Anti-slavery. So this, this vast uh, accusation that the entire church supported slavery is specious. In fact, the argument actually works against the objector because, get this, it's an argument for Christians to resist the prevailing culture, not follow it. Think about that for a second. The churches in the South that continued to promote slavery in the 19th century didn't do it so much because of the Bible, but because of their Southern traditions and their economic interests. In other words, they, they ignored the text for the prevailing culture. That's exactly the opposite of what we're doing today. We're ignoring the prevailing culture, which says affirm homosexuality, and we're saying, no, 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 we're standing on Scripture alone. Make sense? Good. Number six, conservative Christians are obsessed with condemning homosexuality while ignoring their own sins. Ah, the charge of hypocrisy. And again, some of us are guilty of this, right? But here's how the argument is usually framed. You guys keep talking about the sins of gay people, but you ignore divorce and gluttony and other sins in the church. Hmm. Here's how I usually respond to that. I really don't want to talk about homosexuality. It's just that it's plastered all over my computer and my TV all the time. Right? It's not my... The reason it's so much in the news is because it's in the news, right? It's not really what I want to focus on. But more importantly, are they really suggesting that just because the church may be lax on sin A, that we should also become lax on sin B? Is that really the logic? Because that's really poor logic. If we're going to make a biblical or godly correction, we should take both sin A and sin B more seriously, not intentionally neglect one because we've neglected the other. Does that make sense? Okay, fine. You know what, friend? Good point. We don't take divorce seriously enough. We're going to do that. But we're not going to budge on homosexuality. That's the logical result of that one. Last one, and this is the one that's newest and maybe making the most inroads, so we need to know what this one is. The same-sex relationships in the Bible are of a different kind than today's same-sexual relation, same-sex relationships. So here's what's going on. Some liberal scholars are now claiming that research into the background of the New Testament letters show that the biblical authors were not forbidding all same-sex relationships. That was not their intent. They were only condemning abusive same-sex relationships. They were criticizing things like prostitution and rape and pederasty, which is a relationship between a man and a boy. That's what they were talking about. And so the argument is that Paul had no concept of true homosexual orientation. The idea of what a mutual, loving, same-sex relationship was completely foreign to Paul. So he was speaking without knowledge. He was teaching on something on which he didn't have full understanding. All he saw were the ugly negative examples, and naturally, of course, he condemned those things. Now, this argument is very common these days, but it's already been debunked. And ironically, it's been debunked by non-Christian historians. First of all, note again in the text that Paul says that men are burning with passion for one another. That's mutuality. That's not pederasty. That's not rape. They're burning in lust for one another. Second, there are Greek words that Paul could have used if he wanted to describe rape, prostitution, or pederasty. He didn't use those words. Why? Because he didn't intend to speak on those particular practices. Instead, he categorically condemned all sexual relations between people of the same sex, both men and women, as did the writers of the Old Testament. It's not like the Bible's inconsistent on this, right? It's consistent from old to new. Third, it's ludicrous to suggest that Paul didn't know about these so-called mutual, loving, same-sex 
relationships. They were very common in Greek and Roman culture in the first century. In fact, many prominent Greek and Roman citizens engaged in these long-term monogamous relationships. You would have to convince me that Paul knows nothing about Greek culture. You would have to convince me and look at his writings that he's completely disconnected from all Greek and Roman culture as he writes. That is ludicrous. Ludicrous. And thankfully, we have a bevy of important ancient texts on the subject of homosexuality. And when you look at the classics on this, you find out that homosexuality was not reducible to any single pattern. There were so-called bad examples of it, and there were so-called good examples of it, and they were common throughout the first century. So there you go. Seven arguments that are being spun today to chip away at the biblical record. Now you know. Be aware. I don't want any of you to be rocked because you pick up your Nobody picks up a newspaper. I was going to say, picked up your news. Is you went onto your blog or you went to your news site or you saw a comment on Facebook and they brought something up and you went, oh, I never thought of that. Now what do I do? 2,000 years they've been trying to chip away at this, you guys. The arguments just keep getting recirculated and repackaged. Do not be shaken by it. I'll say it again. There is simply no positive case for homosexual practice in the Bible. And no historical or cultural nuance that will allow us to set aside what has been the plain interpretation of the same passages for 2,000 years. Now, let me commend to you a couple of... We're done, by the way, so... Right? Let me commend to you a couple of resources that might help. First of all, the book on the left was written in 2015 by a guy I respect, Kevin DeYoung. And, and what I gave you was just a really shrunk-down, short version of something that's explained in massive detail in his book, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? Really good book. Secondly, on our biblical resource table in the back, where Joel will be after the service, we have a couple of important pamphlets about same-sex attraction and about pornography that you can pick up. We would be glad to get those into your hands if that's something that you need. And by the way, if, there, if privacy is an issue and you're concerned about that, you can always contact Joel or contact me or one of the elders outside of Sunday, outside of the service, and say, I need that resource. We'd be happy to help you with that. Let me write, remind you before we close in prayer. We only touched on half of this subject. This was academic, wasn't it? This was, this was foundationally theological and doctrinal. And that's important. We've laid a foundation it's half the story. Don't, don't start packing up. Are you hearing me? The practical implications of this are massive for us in this culture today. Because it's, all of this sexual sin is surrounding us every day, we have got to know how to take this information and now speak to this broken world. So please come back next week, will you? Nod your head if you're with me. Amen, amen. Let's pray.